Hello and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast, a show featuring Los Angeles's leading women in architecture and issues relevant to the profession. I'm your host, Audrey Sato. If you're an architect or a designer, have you ever questioned whether the project you're working on should even exist? Have you ever wished that you could be involved in those front-end decisions to assess a need and decide what the project should be? I ask this because today's guest is Deborah Weintraub, Chief Deputy City Engineer for the Bureau of Engineering in the City of Los Angeles' Department of Public Works. Deborah is the first architect and the first woman to hold the position, and in this role, she has overseen projects like the Los Angeles River Revitalization Master Plan and the Sixth Street Viaduct, which is currently under construction. Prior to her time at the city, Deborah has also worked in private practices in New York and California and gained expertise in sustainability through her work with the Canadian Consulate and Southern California Edison. I find Deborah's career fascinating in that she held a lot of different types of jobs as an architect, and in each position, she really embraced the impact that she could have in these roles. In this episode, Deborah will talk about a lot of the amazing projects she's working on, and she'll tell us more about what it's like to work in the public sector, and it sounds really interesting. I admire her greatly, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. You're the first woman and the first architect to hold the role as chief deputy engineer here, or really the city's architect. Does that influence how you are uh, leading in this role? I feel like as a first, it's more important that I come here with a design background than that I'm female. But certainly, I think in the context of an engineering, largely engineering organization and an engineering profession, which has been largely male, being a woman in this position has some impacts on those who I work with. As an architect, rising to a leadership position in the organization, I think is more important because the emphasis on design thinking and design intentionality with all the responsibilities that come in the Bureau of Engineering, I think is something that I really did bring with a great deal of energy to the job when I started here approximately 17 years ago. (laughs) And I think that one of the reasons I was hired was less because I explicitly had design background, but that I had background in sustainability and kind of systems thinking about buildings. And that made the engineers who interviewed me excited I brought that plus a passion for doing high quality projects within the public realm. We're right now going through in the Bureau a really concerted effort to bring in a lot more women. Since we're largely an engineering organization, our percentage of women engineers is slowly increasing, even though we're way beyond what typically is in the profession. We're trying to encourage the next generation of city employees in this Bureau to be more evenly women and men. So. I think for those young women who are coming in, we have a very vibrant mentorship program. I think it's important to them to see a woman in a leadership position. Absolutely. So what are some of those strategies you're using to encourage women besides like uh, the mentorship program? Like what what does that mean? Are they paired one-on-one with someone? So the mentorship program, they are paired one-on-one. And so every year I have a protege. Managers at all levels participate, and it's volunteer, and it's a year-long commitment. But once you've had that involvement with someone for a year, you have kind of an ongoing relationship. 
I go out of my way, particularly with the architecture division, to participate in their design reviews, to participate in their events. It's easy to simply sit in my office and feel isolated. So I personally go out of my way to make sure I reach out to the groups who are doing design. Um, we also, more or less quarterly, we run a kind of internal design review. We'll ask one outside designer architect to come in and uh, review a project with us. And that's another way that I get to interact with some of the young staff and also get people focused on thinking in terms of the impact of the particular project on the city and on the community they're building or designing in. The other way that we encourage broad participation is we have a list of architects who are consultants for us, and we now have a list of 20 firms. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're always looking for firms that are committed to public sector architecture, bring diversity, different sizes. And that's been a really interesting and useful way to get folks interested, really anyone, in city work. City work has its own challenges. Mm-hmm. We're not high-end construction and design. It has to be very durable. We do, though, provide facilities for communities that are very important to people's daily lives, whether it's a library, a gymnasium, a park, even a police station, a fire station. You have to, as a designer, whether it's our in-house design teams or consultants, be able to think in that context. Our buildings are built from low-bid mm-hmm. environment. So sometimes the contractors we work with, it can be challenging to get the level of quality that we would like. And it takes a lot of work to see a project through to you know a good level of construction. Wow, that sounds incredible. In your interactions with um, a lot of people coming from STEM fields or the AEC community, do you see diversity there and a lot of women there as well? Or is that still sort of unbalanced too? It really is a question of where you look for. One of the things I noticed coming into the city was it was much more diverse than the private sector. Maybe that comes from an old perception that uh, the public sector would be more welcoming to diverse employees. But we also, we recruit in all the local schools and the local schools are very diverse. So it's, in a sense, it's not hard to find that diversity. And so the recent hires are all sorts of backgrounds. There's a lot of folks who might be first-generation American or first-generation through college. Um, you mentioned you went to Cal Poly Pomona. You know, I'm sure if you look at that student body, it is diverse. So hiring diverse employees is not difficult depending on where you go look for them. <laughs> it's a qualifications-based selection. And so if someone comes in with good qualifications, doesn't matter the background. It's it's really the strength of their commitment to the work they're going to do. Yeah. And then something you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, wanting to make sure that your projects are being reviewed by architects and, and you're bringing good design to communities. I think that's so incredible and important. And it's interesting because a lot of conversations I've been having, the idea that architecture is of a civic concern and has a wider impact, that sounds like exactly what your job is. Well, it's it's kind of what I made my job, I would say. Um, I'm not sure it was a stated objective when I was hired. For example, six or eight months ago, I put together a proposal to start an effort called By Design. And yesterday we had a meeting uh, where we invited a lot of outside architects and designers to talk about streetscapes, uh, because the city is about to invest a lot of money in what we're calling complete streets, redoing streetscapes on key corridors. 
a lot of the work will be basic improvements that provide kind of safety and security, like curb ramps, crossing lights, and that kind of thing, new sidewalks. And my question was, if we're making this big investment, what do we do to improve the visual sensorial quality of those corridors? So that's why I'm calling it by design. How do we improve the visual quality of the public realm with these investments? It's a challenge because there's also a lot of regulation around the public realm to build it in a way that's safe for the public. So there's limitations about what the surface of the sidewalk can be, you know, how high a sign can be, just a lot of rules around it. So the conversation yesterday with these architects was, okay, we have this spatial enclosure, which is this street, and we were looking at a particular street in the valley, Reseda Boulevard, and we were looking at a three-mile stretch. And we had done a video of driving that during the day, 30, 35 miles per hour. I asked everyone to just quietly watch that video, you know, and I, I joked with them and said, I'll, I'll give you a copy, you can watch it on your own again. <laughs> But we all have that experience around the city, miles and miles of these corridors that are kind of visually poor in terms of uh, the public realm. One of the comments yesterday was, it may be visually poor, but there's certain things that are very L.A., the palm trees or other trees, that it's really maybe about heightening those things that are visually L.A., because we're not going to be able to take down all the power poles and power lines Maybe since we're so concentrated on safety improvements around intersections, maybe the investments for visual quality happen at the intersections. And that creates almost a musical rhythm to your drive. And it also then serves the pedestrians who will be crossing at those intersections. So to start to look at the public realm from a visual, sensorial point of view and promote the idea of identity for LA, I think it's very exciting, particularly because I think the city will be making these investments in these public realm street corridors over the next 20 to 30 years. And to start that dialogue now will begin to change how we spend our money. And sometimes, you know, the visual analysis doesn't necessarily mean you're going to spend any more, maybe a little bit more for a color sure, or for a shape, but that little bit more can make a huge difference. Absolutely. Recently, I talked with also Elizabeth Timmy, and um, they had done with L.A. Moss a lot of street improvements uh, where it really was a coat of paint with graphic uh, design, and it, it made a huge difference. Right. So she and her partner, Helen Leung, uh-huh. are our consultants on this effort. Oh, so okay. L.A. Moss is working <laughs> with us on this effort, precisely because they've made the public realm their focus, and they've done it with inexpensive methods, with bright colors, a choice of colors that are both endemic and particular to the Southern California quality of light, and climate and environment, and also um, are visually compelling. So yeah, there are consultants. Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. I think it's wonderful that these projects are happening, and that there's a real sense of you know we're doing this work anyway. How can we take this as an opportunity? I wonder with Los Angeles City being so large, how do you? <laughs> I mean, how do you prioritize, and how do you even manage to wrap your head around that? So it's a little bit like being in a candy shop because there's so much that one could focus on and I don't. 
<laughs> I don't focus on it at all. I also work on some very large projects, like large parks. We're working on a downtown building that take up a lot of my time. And then partially I'm, I'm here to proselytize for this kind of thinking and to encourage others to do it. And then I have colleagues around the city who are like-minded. And so we talk and we support each other. In the architecture division here, I'm always advocating for bringing in young designers who have a passion for thinking in those terms. One of the nice things about working for the city is that there's never any lack of work. Even through sure. the recession, <laughs> we have to continue to serve our constituents who pay taxes. There's work that walks in the door every day. So if the staff is excited about design quality and the work walks in, and there's always very strict deadlines. That's the other thing about working here. We don't have the luxury of time. Hmm. Everyone wants it done yesterday. <laughs> so, but deadlines are, are good and you get to try different things out quickly, see it built, you know, move to the next thing. One of the things I've been less successful at, uh, and maybe this podcast can help, <laughs> is just making young folks coming out of schools locally aware that this opportunity exists. Come work for us. You could, in your first three years here, see a lot built in the public realm that you had a hand in, were involved with. Not to mention that you get a paycheck every other week and you <laughs> can work a 980 and you have a retirement fund that's being funded. I mean, I can't think of a better job. I've tried to reach out to the schools to say, you know, it's a pretty interesting place that you could make a difference in. So maybe this podcast <laughs> can help get the word out. I think that there's enormous opportunities and will continue to be. Particularly in the next 30 years, there's large investments being made. The 10 years now till the Olympics will uh, represent a period of large investments from a variety of organizations, both public and private. So I, I think working in the public sector, working in this environment for young folks represents an enormous opportunity. I mean, as an architect, I would never have imagined being able to be involved, for example, in the Sixth Street Viaduct. But I helped to write the request for qualifications. I helped to format and advocated for the international design competition. In writing the request for qualifications, I made clear that there had to be an architect on the project. It couldn't be just an engineering project. It needed to be a collaboration. And I also, in writing the request for qualifications, was able to describe that I wanted the bridge to make urban connections. The old bridge, which unfortunately we had to tear down because it was decaying, never made connections to all the land underneath it. So in writing the request, the kind of the design criteria, I said, we, we, we want to see proposals that make that connection, that make the bridge both a bridge for cars that are going from one community to the other, but for bicyclists, for mothers with children who... Because we were spending a lot of money to buy land in order to change the alignment of the bridge. And now we're in the midst of designing a 12-acre open space that is under the bridge on the east side, goes over the river, gives access to the river. And under the bridge on the Arts District side, we're creating a performance space. So it's really infrastructure as urban amenity serving multiple purposes. And I think with, with my design training and my training in analyzing cities, I was able to bring a particular perspective to that. And in order to do that, it meant I had to be sitting here. I had to have the document come to me for review. And I had to be willing to put in the hours to change not a lot of words, but just enough words in there to make it clear that the project had to have these multiple layers. It's going to be a really beautiful structure that will be visible from a distance, will be beautifully lit, and then it will have these great community amenities. It will be 
something that I think people will come from around the city to experience, to walk over, to walk down. We have wonderful ramps that will take you down to the open space to attend a performance. Mm -hmm. In the Arts Plaza, we have a really generous donation from the Leonard Hill Foundation to help add components to the performance space in the Arts Plaza. There's talk about maybe a metro stop there. So it's just interesting. If you bring a design perspective, you can begin to make those kinds of slight changes that make a huge difference in the long-term life. I mean, this bridge will be there 100 years, Right. we hope. Um, And it has some exciting engineering components, too. It's the first base-isolated bridge that we're building here in Southern California. So if I hadn't been sitting here to review that document, (laughs) you know, I don't know that it would have happened. It's very important to bring into the city folks with design perspectives who are there at the right moment, the right place. Yeah, that's a super exciting project. And it, it seems like, you know, in your capacity, you're not just acting as, a, you know, an architect, but as an, a real urbanist. I wonder, you know, does that bridge project or viaduct project um, really, does it incorporate some of the proposals in the LA River revitalization master plan? I also wrote that request for proposals to do the master plan. Uh I wrote that document for a year because we vetted it with every interested party and said, is this what you want us to do? Um, And then we did the master plan, which took three years to do, and we listed 240 projects. The master plan is now about 11 years old. It's right over there on my shelf. I still refer to it. It's still, (laughs) in my mind, a very, you know, very much an active and vibrant document. Where the old 6th Street Bridge existed, there was a tunnel that went under the rail tracks that connected to the river, and it was put in place largely, I think, for maintenance in the river. So as part of the bridge project, we're going to be improving that tunnel and lighting it better and making it a pedestrian pathway to the river. In Measure M that the voters approved, there's money to do a bikeway in the river, which Metro is the lead on. There's a young female project manager there who is very good. So our refurbished tunnel and ramps to the top of the channel will connect to that bikeway, which in her work over time will create a bikeway all through downtown along the river. So we're taking this old infrastructure and repurposing it. Um, And that's a river project. There are not a lot of places where you can get access to the river. So yes, It's a project that helps to realize one objective of the river master plan. I mean, we're doing a lot of other river projects. Um, The fact that I worked on the master plan helped lead that effort. It's always there in my mind. Yeah, no, that's that's very clear because I think the old 6th Street Bridge was beautiful. And you're right. It was really hard to interact with the river in that spot. But it sounds like this new project, once it opens, will bring so much vitality to that area. It's great. It will. I think it will. And I think the experience of just walking the sidewalks, which are going to be ample, and being able to stand there in the middle of the river and look north and south, the, the views are quite wonderful. You should go see the construction because it's this is major construction. Um, I've seen photos. It's yeah, amazing. It's amazing. So I'm excited about that project. Our master plan is about 11 years old. We're starting to do some major projects. Um, but I think in the next 20 years, we'll, we'll really see the transformation of the river. The county has announced that they're right. going to redo 
a master plan for all 52 miles of the river, incorporating the work others have done, including our master plan. And I think that the energy and intention won't dissipate. So we've done a lot of projects and it will continue to happen. So G2, Taylor Yard G2, <laughs> was identified in the master plan as a really key site to create significant transformation along the river. It was a rail yard for close to 100 years, and the river was diverted around in a kind of an S or a curve shape in order to allow the rail yard to continue to function. The idea was that that was a place where we really could break the concrete wall and recreate some of the kind of meandering streams that was more typical of our natural hydrology, hydraulics. Uh, so we bought 42 acres. I can't remember when the city recently bought anything of that scale for yeah. open space. And we've started the process of planning and design. We've um, held a couple of community meetings. We've hired a consultant team to work on it. The consultant team is being led by WSP, an engineering firm. And we're starting the process of talking about how to use the site in the near term and then allow for the long-term changes, which would be that channel change. Uh, the long-term changes will require approval and involvement from the federal government. And at this particular moment, they don't have the funds to be involved with us right now, nor do we really have the funds to make that major change. Doesn't mean we can't start to use the site, create open space and habitat-friendly environments. So that's a major river project that yeah. is in development right now. And probably towards the end of this year, we'll have these designs completed. We have to work very closely with the State Department of Toxic Substances. It is a contaminated site. But we have an understanding with them that we will try to do the cleanup in stages and open areas of the site that are clean as quickly as possible. Otherwise, the site might remain closed for a long time. And our hope is to get the public access to the river from that site as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. We have another project that we're doing in collaboration with Metro. They have funded a pedestrian and cycle bridge right at the edge of Taylor Yard G2. And that is going out to bid and should be in construction by the end of the year. Um, and that will make a connection between the Elysian Valley community and the community on the east side of the river. Right, the SPFA design. SPFA, yes. Right, a beautiful <laughs> design, simple but elegant. And then up the river from that, there's a bridge we're managing construction on that the River LA nonprofit developed uh -huh. um, the Atwater Village Bridge. And that's a tall mast cable stayed design. And that is in construction. You don't see anything physically happening out there yet because we can't be in the river till the rains are over, till April. I see. But the contractor has been exchanging shop joints and all that. We're preparing to break ground as soon as we can be in the channel. So those kind of bracket the Taylor G2N in terms of the master plan begin to realize one of the key structural ideas we had, which is we're not going to do the whole river all at once. So let's create these river loops that give the public an opportunity to experience the river, do a loop and come back to where they start. Yeah. We just smart. finished this big document sitting here on my desk, <laughs> this enormous <laughs> wow. document. We have some bikeways in the valley along the river built in pieces. We decided we needed to really look at what it would take to fill those gaps. We have a really comprehensive study now, which Gruen Associates um, helped us with. And we have money to start design on the first segment. We're in discussion with our policymakers in the valley to talk about which segment we should start design on. So we have a guiding document with a great deal of specificity <laughs> 
Um, we also brought in the architecture firm Euler Wood. They suggested some really simple but really elegant visual kind of alphabet that I would love to continue to build on. And again, it takes folks with my training, your training, yeah. to be here to say, well, we have this guiding document. Let's just go with it so that when we do the next projects five <laughs> years from now, that we'll begin to create a consistent quality. Right. Um, so th- that's how the river's happening. It's happening with some private players. The city of Glendale's doing their pro- own project. Metabolic Studios doing a very important project. The city's doing projects. The Mountain Recreation and Conservation Authority is doing projects. River LA is doing projects. The county has been, right. and they're stepping up. And so we're trying to be very welcoming of all the players. And it takes a community to transform a piece of infrastructure of this scale. Oh, absolutely. I mean, miles and miles. Miles and miles, yeah. (laughs) And a lot of very specific community concerns that need to be addressed as each of these projects happen. Right. There's a lot of talk about, you know, how wonderful this is, but at the same time, some communities are worried about gentrification. And are there ways to mitigate those fears and that from happening, the displacement? There's a lot of discussion about this, and I'm not sure that I have all the answers. I do think that the concern about displacement and gentrifications is very real. You create new open space and it can drive up property values in the area because it's an urban amenity that is seen as desirable. I think at a city level, the policies about around housing are what really are going to address those concerns. So the council recently passed a linkage fee for new developments in order to create a fund that would support affordable housing. Because I'm not involved with the policies around housing. I'm involved with designing and delivering these projects. And so what's very important to me and to the, the city staff is that we do as robust an outreach to the communities that we're working in and get feedback. And we're very focused on the communities that we're working in saying, we're creating this for you, so help us figure out what you want. Mm-hmm. What will improve your quality of life? In each community, very much tailor our outreach. I can't solve the displacement gentrification alone, right? but I can make sure that we're understanding what the existing residents of that area would like to see come into their neighborhood. We're solely renovating the city, hearing from those residents what they want and don't want, because they actually know those places better than anyone, Right, is very important and often requires real thoughtfulness about how to how to extract that information. Yeah, I mean, how did you learn to navigate not just uh, you know, outreach with communities, but the vast layers of <laughs> organizations and, you know, agencies that you have to coordinate with? So I have a lot of help. <laughs> I have really wonderful staff who've done projects in the city for years. We have a lot of manuals that help guide folks. Don't forget this permit. Don't forget that permit. Don't forget to talk to so-and-so. So So there's a lot of kind of structural guidance. And then there's just being uh, social, being present at City Hall, being willing to attend community meetings and meet community leaders, getting help from the council offices. Who are those people who have over the years expressed interests in these kinds of things. So some of it's soft skills and just a commitment to doing it. You know, architecture is, it is a visual art. It's also very much a social art. And 
one of the great things about working in the city is that you're exposed to both aspects of it on every single project. Even our sewer projects, and we do a lot of <laughs> sewer projects or things below the street. Of course, it's tremendously important to communities when you're going to be tearing up their street. They need to understand the benefit because they will suffer some, well, some pain during construction. But the architects who work in-house here, they've said that to me. You know, they love the fact that they're not just designing on a site, they're designing in a neighborhood context, and they're hearing from our political and policy representatives. And you hear that from day one. If you're someone who's interested in that intersection of the social and the visual and the aesthetic, um, then working in the public sector is the way to most quickly engage that. Yeah, because I just realized your clients are not individuals. They're the city. I mean, right. they're they're <laughs> the community. Well, even if it's an, in another department, like new police stations, they are very much our client, and the internal working is very important to them. But for the community, that police station represents something important, too. All of the new police stations we built had community rooms. And there's one in Boyle Heights, which I really love, that uh, – has a beautiful plaza in front, a lot of glass. It has a glass entry. So there's that sense of changing what the institution means to the community through the form of the building that we have to think about. Mm -hmm. And we have to talk about with the community and with our policymakers and our clients and get buy-in because that sets the tone of, of a city. It sets a tone of a place. Right. Wow. <laughs> it sounds like such a really interesting place to work. Um, so students who are listening. So have I sold out of the job, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, you're not going into some low-paid um, intern position where you're slaving away and maybe not getting a connection with the um, people who are using the building or, you know, it sounds like you have a real connection with the work. Yeah, for young folks coming into the organization, uh, you can see the impact of your work very quickly. Which is surprising because um, you would think in working on government projects that things would just take a lot longer. For sure, on some scale, like an LA River <laughs> master plan, it does take a very long time. But these other projects... Well, a lot of our projects start because they're funded. And I have worked in the private sector, and I know one does a lot of speculative designs, but a lot of our projects happen because they're already funded. Right. And once um, our colleagues at City Hall have put that funding together, again, the goal is get it done. So it's less common we do kind of speculative. We do. There's like master plans are basically speculative. It's more common we're doing projects that just need to get delivered. Yeah. Before we end the interview, could you talk a little bit about your personal path to where you are today? Because it did have some turns in there and it, right. it, it is, you have a lot of experience of wide experience. And I think it's really interesting. I can't say it was all intentional, but <laughs> as you know, it's partially just analyzing where you're at at a moment and looking at where the opportunities are that interest you. But I very much had a traditional architectural education, but the schools I went to were focused on urban design issues. And I did a typical apprenticeship with different architecture firms. I actually early on had some really wonderful experience with preservation work in Manhattan, um, like on the main branch of the public library. I worked on the first rooms that were restored before the whole building was restored. And uh, that was really exciting wow. for me to do. But um, 
when I moved to Los Angeles, I came with my husband, who at the time was in the movie business, and I arrived at a time of recession, and 50% of the profession was unemployed. It was really kind of dismal mm-hmm. situation. I did some freelance work at that point with different small firms, and then at the time, the internet wasn't big, so I was reading one ads in the paper, right? Yeah. And I saw an ad for, it said, someone with a knowledge of construction, and I thought, okay, I have that. Someone who can speak Spanish, and I can kind of passably speak Spanish. I lived for a while in Latin America as a kid. And someone with a knowledge of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, <laughs> I didn't know a lot about NAFTA, but my father, who was an economist, was an expert in NAFTA. Didn't say what the company was who was hiring, but I called my dad up and he said, okay, here's what you need to know about NAFTA. Turned out it was the Canadian consulate in Los Angeles who was looking to hire a trade officer to represent Canada's interests in five Western states in construction and design. And with my father's help, I aced the interview because they asked questions. He said, they're going to ask you about this, Deborah. (laughs) And it was all I could do to keep from laughing because they asked exactly what he told me they were going to ask. (laughs) So I sounded intelligent, you know, and it was actually a wonderful job. The Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs wanted me to promote Canadian architects. And my first reaction was, you know, half my profession's unemployed. That's why I'm here in this job. Why would anyone hire a Canadian architect? One of the things that interested me and I was able to confirm was that Following the energy crisis of the 70s, the Canadians had, at a government level, more consistently invested in research in energy efficiency and sustainability. And so I I wrote a a kind of position paper for the Department of Foreign Affairs and said, let me spend time promoting Canadian architects who have expertise in sustainability. And at the time, no one had really heard that word. So a lot of folks read it and said, what's sustainability? But they green-lighted it. We brought teams of Canadian, both academics and and also practitioners. Um, They had embraced a green building rating system that really generated from England. They were developing their own green building rating systems. A Canadian team was hired. It was a mixture Canadian-American, L.A.-based, but they were hired by the city of Santa Monica, Mm -hmm. I think partly through my efforts, partly through... Uh, introducing these folks to local professionals to write the first green building guideline in Southern California. I do believe that work played a role in the development of LEED because LEED at that time hadn't really been developed. It was three or four people in a small office in San Francisco, uh, the U.S. Green Building Council. It's now become tens of thousands of people and has an international impact. So I used that job at the Canadian Consulate to give myself an education, and I had great teachers. I also called everyone in North America, in the U.S., who was involved with green building issues. The AIA was starting the Committee on the Environment. And I connected the Canadians and the Americans to the extent that I could. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I came out of that with a really wonderful education, like a master's in sustainability. And from there, was I was recruited by Southern California Edison, uh, who has a group that um, does demonstration sustainability, energy efficiency projects. It was, for me, very anomalous to be working for an electric utility, but we were kind of a small group within the utility helping our customers understand the benefits of sustainability and energy efficiency. And it was a small group, mostly engineers, who had been trained all over the world, who had a passion for this work. And 
each with different expertise. So it was a really wonderful group to work with. I, again, learned a tremendous amount from each of them, filled in gaps that I had never focused on. And we were able to choose kind of key construction industries that were building a lot and then offer our services, say, we'll bring these additional services. We'll do daylight modeling. We'll do energy efficiency program runs to see what the operating energy savings could be. We did a warehouse with staples, daylit a warehouse. They had never daylit a warehouse before. We did a beautifully daylit school project with City of Costa Mesa. We did a energy efficient production home with Beezer Homes. We did sample designs for portable classrooms that also include daylighting and more efficient HVAC equipment. We helped initiate the green building guideline for public schools in California. So it was an unusual place to end up working, um, but a, a wonderful job. And I was sad when I left there, but the position to run the architecture division in the city came up. I knew the prior city architect, and he called me. He was retiring and said, you should really think about this. And I, I hadn't thought I was really qualified. I had never run a large organization. So the city engineer at the time and the panel who interviewed me took a chance that I had a passion for what I was trained in. And I also, I think this sustainability background, the systems thinking about buildings was very important. And so coming into the city was challenging because I hadn't run a large organization and it's a big place. We're a big bureaucracy. So there was a lot to learn. I had very good bosses. Uh -huh. You know, it's always important to have good bosses who, when you really feel like you don't know where to turn to get an answer, um, helped me a great deal. And, and I had very good staff, many of whom had been here their entire careers, who helped me a great deal. So coming into the city was a huge change. But, and I had a friend who said, you're crazy to do that. You know, don't do that. And I said, I think you're wrong. I don't think <laughs> I'm crazy. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't listen to her. And so I've been here 17 years and it has flown by. And the amount of work and projects I've been able to touch and have some influence on, I don't think would have happened in almost any other environment. Because I believe in cities as the future of how people will live and in making sure cities continue to change and evolve, it's been very rewarding. And there are challenges every day. There are things that are both positive and negative that you have to try and work your way through and at this point in my career, um, that's really exciting. I find that really exciting. I'm not a specialist. I'm a generalist, but I'm learning every day. And I work in an organization where, you know, if, if in an hour's time I need to bring together a structural engineer, a real estate expert, a geotechnical expert, an architect, a civil engineer, we can do that. And from my perspective, that's very enriching. Being in the city has been a great treat and it's been a, you know, it's, I, I ran my own practice for a while. I, I did what, what you're doing, mm -hmm. which is mostly home, home residential work in New York. And I think that taught me a lot. This was before computers. So I did my own drafting, right. you know, it gave me a sensitivity to what it takes to do a drawing, what it takes to start from a blank sheet of paper and give instructions to how a project should be built. So, um, Maybe it's a logical path. It didn't, I couldn't have told you when I started out I would end up here. 
I tell you the other reason I think I ended up here. And again, I do think each time you make a change, it's about assessing where you are at that moment and where you want to go. I really personally wanted to be more at the front end of decisions. And I felt in my architecture experience that often as architects, we come to a project after a site's been chosen, after a program's been written, after the funding's been identified, and then we're told, do it. And I wanted the opportunity to help make those decisions from a design perspective. And so coming into the city has given me that opportunity, as I mentioned earlier, to write the requests for proposals or requests for qualifications, to choose the sites uh, based on kind of neighborhood needs. And I think that more design-trained folks should be at those front-end decisions, along with your policymakers and your neighborhood representatives. I think we have a lot to bring to those discussions. So maybe if I were to look back, I'd say my ambitions to be involved in those early formulations maybe logically led me to where I am. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't really believe actually that anyone can plan out their whole career. Yeah. <laughs> but, but looking it, back, maybe you can see. Yeah. You can see a logic to it. Oh, yeah. Certainly. It seems like you had such a wide breadth of experiences and then really the transition to being at the forefront of sustainability really gave you a lot of options on where to go and a lot, a huge impact really on our profession. Right. right. Well, choosing to teach myself sustainability, it was a conscious decision and a leap of faith and was very important. Mm -hmm. um, and it was as much a, a moral and emotional decision as anything because I, I saw colleagues get ill. You know, I started to think, why are women getting breast cancer in their 20s? I saw people start to get ill and thought, what are we as a profession doing to address that? You know, the whole issue of indoor air quality and the contaminants in building materials was a kind of early motivation. Um, so it was a conscious decision. I thought to myself, I think there's something here that's important and I need to understand this. Well, clearly, I mean, the success that you've made for yourself and the path that you took a lot of it was due to your ambition and openness and real willingness to not let yourself say, well, I don't know about that. I'm not going to go after that. I think that's amazing. That's, um, I think a lot of people possess that desire. And sometimes you need people around you saying, go for it. And I've also been very lucky to have those folks, my family and friends. The woman who told me not to take the job in the city I went to her for every other job change, and she is someone who always has a strong opinion, mm -hmm. which I really respect. I always know when I go to her, she'll have a strong opinion. Um, it was always important to bounce things off her. Yeah. It's important to keep those kind of professional colleagues, friends around you, too, because I, I think that I would have made some poor decisions without that <laughs> input. Sure. I have had many conversations with people about, you know, I'm working on this building but does it even deserve to exist? It sounds wonderful that you have this opportunity really to be that person and say, you know what, this project does matter. This project makes sense. Like this community needs this. I think that's amazing. Yeah, if you're doing public sector work, almost everything that comes across your task is necessary. It's like the public sector doesn't spend money frivolously, you know. <laughs> And I'm not saying the private sector does necessarily, but we don't tend to do vanity projects. Uh, and I'm not saying all vanity projects are bad, you know, but that's just not what we're charged with. From my perspective, that choice is, has, I've connected with that. 
Yeah. It's important to me. So it sounds like if, if, you know, a student out there is looking at architecture and thinking that, you know, they're really motivated by a sense of um, altruism yeah. or civic engagement, this would be a great place for them. Yes. <laughs> and I keep hearing that the students have that motivation more strongly than maybe the last generation. So I keep thinking that more students should be thinking about public sector positions for that reason. I know the current generation doesn't think about being one place for their career. <laughs> I certainly wasn't. But maybe for a period of time, it's an opportunity to, to have a, an impact on urban environments. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This is wonderful. And that's our show. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guest was Deborah Weintraub. To find out more about our show, please visit our website at www.xx-la.com. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on social media at XXLA Podcast or write a review. Thanks for listening.